You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. I'm Robert Smith, your host, and this is the Fair Game Podcast. As you know, we spent 49 episodes now speaking with a huge variety of people in our industry, from fair managers to marketing directors, from entertainers to concessionaires and ride operators. All of them have shared their 2020 stories. We decided we wanted to sprinkle in some non-fair guests as well. So on occasion throughout this year, we'll be inviting guests who have inspiring stories of their own. Today's guest is the 50th of the season and brings us one of those inspiring stories. In 1999, he was a teacher and baseball coach for Reagan County High School in the small West Texas town of Big Lake. That year, he made a deal with his players that would trigger a series of events which would change his life, and that series of events would be made into a movie in 2002. Joining me today from San Antonio, Texas, is the man whose life inspired the 2002 Disney's The Rookie, Jim Morris. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Good to be, good to be here, man. I'm really glad to have you here on the show. You know, as a kid growing up, loving baseball, I have to tell you, it's just an honor to get you on the show today. Take us back, if you would, to 1999. You're the coach at Ra- for the Reagan County Owls, and a deal gets made between you and your players. Tell us about that deal. And we just got run ruled second game of the season. And I didn't know what to tell them. And I, I stood on home plate and, you know, I've got a lot of faith. And so because of my grandparents, I just stood on the plate and I said a prayer. What can I do to help these kids? How can I push them without breaking them? How can I get them to trust me? And the answer was simple. Go down there and teach them what your grandparents taught you. And so we went down and we had an old school talk about hopes and dreams and goals. And I get into it and I think I'm sounding good because they're all connected. They're all smiling. And that's when my 18 year old catcher looked at me and goes, what about your dreams coach? And I said, Nope, I'm old and I've had a surgery and the doctor said, you'll never pitch again. And you know, every excuse I could come up with coach, we think you still love the game. Why are you telling us to chase our dreams if you're not willing to do it yourself? And I said, you're 18, shut up. <laughs> and, and he started giggling. He goes, but coach, the way you teach us, everything about the game. We know what the other team's going to do before they do it. When you throw us batting practice, we can't hit it. And I said, that's because you can't hit. And, you know, everybody's giggling now. And what it comes down to, if they want a district baseball championship, which these kids have never been a part of, then I had to try out again. They won. And I had to try out. And you had to try out. So let's back up, though, for a minute. Even for a young, healthy, talented player, the journey from high school or college to professional baseball is fraught with challenges. Your journey to Major League Baseball didn't actually start in 1999. It started back in the early 80s. Tell me about that. Yeah, the Yankees drafted me without ever seeing me right out of high school. We didn't even have a high school baseball team. Wow. But my grandfather was sick with ALS, and I wanted to stay close to home. So I passed on the Yankees, which not many people do. And... I went to Ranger Junior College, and during that course of time, the next five months, my grandfather got really ill and passed away. But there were some important lessons in there that were incredible. And basically, he said, if you're ever going to do anything, do it with everything you have, because you don't want to wake up one day and go, what if? What if I would have tried a little harder? And so after he passed away, Two months later was the January draft of 1983. The Milwaukee Brewers drafted me in the first round, fourth pick. 
And I signed thinking I am good because I strike out everybody at home. And I get to my first spring training and I can't get anybody out. Could you even and, find the plate? Oh, hardly. And when I did, it still hasn't landed yet. And it's like 30 years later. Wow. It's when you think you're one thing and you're not where you thought you were, all these kids were from college or they've been playing pro ball for a few years. And I'm this kid fresh out of high school, football all-star and summer league baseball player. And I'm, I'm expecting to compete with them. And maturity wise, I didn't have it going on. Yeah, there's a there's a big step between uh, high school and, and college and the maturity uh, factor. Let's flash flash forward those 17 years. Um, you know, your career had fizzled there in the early 80s and you moved on to other things. But you're standing there with your team now, having just won a district championship. And there's a point in the movie where one of them, I believe, in the locker room walks up to Dennis Quaid, who portrayed you in the film and says, it's your turn, your turn, coach, and gives you a baseball from uh, from the team. I understand that or something very similar to that happened in real life. How are you feeling as you realize your team has done their part and now it's your turn to do yours? Well, I had forgotten. By the end of the season, the kids are hitting me all over the park and I've forgotten about the bet. They hadn't. And in that championship, that district championship game, we're down three to one in the bottom of the six, one inning to go. And I just said, what do you guys want? And I watched the kids score six runs and then hold the other team to zero. And we won seven, three. And I was, I just thought everything that my grandparents taught me came to a head right here because this is what it is about. It's not about me. And it's never been about me. It's about we, it's about team. What can we do together to improve? Yeah. And Watching those kids celebrate something that not even they thought they could do was incredible for me. And so touching. And since I'd forgotten about the bet, I was just happy for them. I'm sitting there on the bus. Up comes my second baseman who hands me a game ball. I had Reagan County Owls District 128 champs. Everybody signs it. I start crying. And then he hugs me. He goes, we did our part. Now it's your turn. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> You're 35, you weigh 260. You're going to go try out for a major league baseball team. That is embarrassing and appalling. You should never do that. Wow. But I made a promise. And you did. And you kept that promise. And you went to that tryout where history says you threw a dozen straight pitches at 98 miles an hour, which 35-year-olds are not supposed to be able to do, especially when they haven't been in the game for almost two decades. Can you give folks listening an idea of how rare it is for someone to throw that hard, let alone a 35-year-old? Oh, it is. I had a statistic one time a minor league coach gave me. He goes, 1% of ball players go from high school to college. 1% of those go from college to the pros. 1% of those actually make it to the elite level. Now to that 1% of 1% of 1%, you've got pitchers. And now it's a little more common because of all the travel ball and kids playing constantly one sport all year. But back when I played, it wasn't that it wasn't very common. And if right. they could throw that hard, it wasn't for very long. And then they are out and they did something to their arm. Very few Nolan Ryans from back then who did everything and then worked harder in the off season than he did during the season. Those type of people are phenomenons and, so back when I played, not very many, maybe yeah. one a team, 
Yeah, at most. I mean, even today in the majors, um, there's to be able to consistently throw 98. It just, especially once you get up to 35, 36, arms, shoulders, rotator cuffs don't hold on. You know, I can see a 24 year old doing it, but 35 after being out of the game for a long time, that's, I think, the good Lord trying to tell you something at that point. You know, sometimes we've got a different road to destiny than we think we do. And, yeah. And to go back to your point, all the young guys, they can throw hard, but they don't know where it's going. It's the guys who come through the minors and learn how to throw hard and how not to throw hard that move on up. And that was a big difference to me the first time around. Early on, I just thought, throw it as hard as you can every single pitch, and it's good. Well, as hard as I could throw the first time was 88 or 89. And when I did throw a strike, people were like, yes, and crushing <laughs> me because I didn't throw very hard. Right. And so when I came back, I definitely realized, and the game had changed so much. We went from early 80s to run, 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 pitchers never lift to 99, and we're going to lift, 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 and then we're going to do a few sprints, and then we're going to lift some more. And yeah. it, the game is totally transformed. Well, you you know, you talk about speed. It's speed's one part of the equation, and you know, control and location for a pitcher is the other. Just uh, all one has to do is look at Mariano Rivera. You know, when you look at his career, the guy essentially had one pitch. It was a cut fastball, but he could put it within a millimeter, damn near anywhere on that plate when he wanted to at will. Fantastic reliever, man. He was awesome. Yeah, he was. I I was always when it came to Hall of Fame voting, I always was of the mind that you know. Cal Ripken or Tony Gwynn should have been the first that were unanimous, but the fact that it was Mo, I have no objection to. He was fantastic. Absolutely. So listen, a friend of mine from college, uh, Kevin, who started his career um, at a newspaper out there in Clovis, New Mexico, just on the New Mexico side from Lubbock, he started as a sports writer and he and I've been friends for almost 25 years now, but he had a, he was curious about one scene in the movie. You'd throw your pitches and a scout walks up to you and says something to the effect of, you know, if, if I tell them I've got a 35 year old, I'm going to get laughed at. But if I don't tell them that I got a guy who can throw 98, I'm going to get fired. So don't be surprised if you get a call. How much of that from the movie actually transpired in real life? The scout was Doug Gassaway. He was probably around 70 then. He'd been scouting forever. And the first thing he said to me when he came up, he goes, I remember you. Back when you were at Ranger, everybody thought you could be good, but that you signed too early when the Brewers drafted you. He goes, I don't know. He goes, I don't care how old you are. You're left-handed. Your ball moves like crazy and you throw 98. I got to call it in. What they do with it, that they're, that's their business. I later found out that he, not laughing at that, but he had had a drinking problem, right? And so he goes, they're going to think I'm drinking again, but I'm going <laughs> to tell them anyway. And it was just a cute back and forth between me and him. And I was like, yeah, they're going to call a 35-year-old. You bet. He goes, you're not 35 anymore. You're 32. And <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter you're 98 is all they cared you are 98 miles an hour and and you know for major league baseball that's a number that um i guess as i understood i always played second base when i was a kid but as i understand it there's a point where somewhere about 96 that it gets real hard even for major leaguers to catch up to that so once you cross that threshold you're in really elite company especially when your ball moves man those guys that can make it move like they want to and throw that hard I know hitting has got to be the toughest sport on the planet of anything I've ever seen because you're moving a, a moving force against a 
different shape moving force and you got to have the timing exactly correct. Yep. And your eyes are on a different plane from the ball looking down exactly. at, at an angle that's, you know, I, I here in Albuquerque, the isotopes are the, uh, the triple a affiliate for the um, Colorado Rockies. But for a while there, while the 51s were the triple a affiliate for the Mets, we I'd go see the 51s because I've been a Mets fan my whole life. And I got to see Noah Syndergaard in his final minor league start before he got called up. So I'm sitting down behind home plate and let me tell you what, and you know this cause you threw them. There is a sound to a ball that goes that fast. It, it, it Absolutely. has a, has a zip to it. There's a sizzle on it. And all these isotopes fans are sitting there going, you can hit this guy. Come on. And I'm like, all I hear pop, pop. And I'm like, no, you can't hit him. It's something special yeah. to be able to, to be able to throw that hard. And I got to tell you, the moment in the film where you get called up to join the big club is so powerful. Uh, and the moment is, I feel like, is outdone on screen literally five or ten seconds later when a coach says, not only did you get called up, but you're going to join the team in Arlington. It literally gives me chills every time because that's your home state. You, you know, your, yeah. your family is going to get to come see you make your major league debut. I mean, that's huge. For me, that is a top five baseball movie moment. What goes through your head when you're in that clubhouse with Durham and you just get told not only you're getting called up, but you're going to Texas to do it? Well, first, thank you. Uh, first thing I thought was relief because he had tagged me on the shoulder when he walked by in the clubhouse and he goes, I need to talk to you. And I kind of followed him into his office, our big league, man our AAA manager and I, I got my head down. I'm not sad. I'm not upset. I'm going back. I'm coaching football. I've already got a job in Fort Worth and they've already started two a days. Everything's cool. And so I'm process everything. I got to be a kid again at 35. How cool is that? I got to play baseball when I wanted to. And the big league general manager was there and he goes, you can smile. You're going to be in, in Texas tomorrow. And I didn't get it at first. And I said, I know that Bobby and I are going home right now. And Bobby Munoz was from Texas. He was trying to get back after elbow surgery. And my, my whole world changed that night with just those words. You're, you're going to the big leagues. And it's in my home state, my favorite ballpark, in front of my, my, not only my high school kids, but my kids for the first time in three months, I'm getting to see everybody. It is one of the, the best days of just incredible things happening. All those people are there, but then you walk into a clubhouse where there's Wade Boggs with this guy in his 3,000th hit, comes up and hugs me. He goes, man, I don't think I've ever heard a better story. And I looked at him, and I'm still a fan and a coach, right? I'm like, you're right. Wade Boggs. <laughs> yeah. And he just starts giggling, hugs me, walks off, Roberto Hernandez, Fred McGriff, and, and now I'm in the same clubhouse with them because I can do what they do. That's just – that's a cool moment. Yep, and – how did that debut go? Because, you know, for those people who haven't seen the movie, they may not know. I know because I've seen the movie a dozen times, including watching it again yesterday. Uh, how did it go on that Major League debut? Well, they had me warm up in the eighth inning, and I thought, oh, they just want me to warm up. I've thrown three days in a row in AAA. There's no way I'm going in. Next thing I know, you're in. There's a big difference, number one, with going from a classroom of 30 kids to a stadium filled with 42,000 people and ball players on the opposing team that are some of the top players in their sport. And so I'm making my run into the mound. I remember all the smells and all the colors and all the sounds of baseball. 
And as I close on the mountain, I've heard people say this their whole lives and go, everything just kind of closed down and I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear the fans. I couldn't hear what anybody was saying except for my big league manager and my catcher, John Flaherty. And we did the signs. They went back. I took my warm-ups. Royce Clayton stepped into the box, first guy. Um, Tom Good was the runner at first, very fast guy for Texas. And there's two outs in the inning. And, you know, John gives me a sign for a fastball. I come set. I, I check on Gordon and I throw home. He swings through it for strike one. I'm like, I threw a strike. <laughs> <laughs> and you got Royce Clayton to swing at it, of all people. Yeah. And then the second pitch was a fastball also. And I, I check on good when I throw it home. He takes it for strike two. Now, on in the movie, he strikes out on a third pitch. In real life, he fouled off the third pitch over the first base dugout and struck out on the fourth pitch. During the movie making, after eight hours of trying to get the, the guy to foul off the ball, he goes, you know what? You struck him out in three pitches. And I said, okay. Okay. That's a little uh, creative license. I think we'll let Disney get away with there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you couldn't, how, how they didn't get somebody to, you know, the other actor to foul it off in eight hours. I, I think maybe even I could have done that, but I mean, you never know when you got things just look different. I'm sure from your side, when you're seeing cameras and angles and lighting and how they're shooting a film, it's not necessarily as easy as people think to get a foul ball or get the pitch exactly where you need it to be. Yeah. It's a little difficult. So after that, as monumentous as that occasion was in the movie, I'm curious because I just finished reading your book. So I have some insight on what your relationship was with your father in the movie. You give him the game ball. Mm -hmm. Did that actually happen? It actually did right in front of Jose Canseco. And I gave it to him and I don't know that it was such, is such a sim symbol of love as I actually did wind up being somebody. And that's what I tried to live up to with him my whole life. And that's, that's where my stumbling blocks came in was trying to outdo what he said I couldn't do. You feel and like so you, I just tried. Go I'm ahead. Sorry, you feel like you struggled trying to live up to what his expectations were instead of being who you were naturally. Yeah, because everything that came out of his mouth towards me was negative and it was never good enough. And so trying to please him was a, a bull mark, a bullseye on a target that could never be, you could never get it ever. And as soon as you thought you were going one way, the arrow would get flicked off and you'd miss the target completely. And that was our relationship and physically, verbally abusive, never could live up to his things. And you read the book, so you know a little bit more than your listeners right now, yeah. but it didn't end well. You know, my, the guy who married Shauna and I, our pastor up in Dallas, he said, you don't have to kick people out of your lives because of what they've done. He goes, just change their priority. He said, have you gone to him and talked to him about all the hurts you've ever encountered? And I said, not in so many words. And so I tried that and he looked at me and he didn't hug me. He didn't say, I love you. He goes, it's never as bad as you thought it was. Really? Because I'm the kid who remembers you going, we didn't want you wow. as he's holding my little brother. This is the one we wanted. And so just to try to live up to that and hand in the ball, it wasn't done in a like, oh, here, see what I did. It was more like, that's another one. Told me I couldn't do it and I did it. So there we go. Wow. 
Do we know whatever happened to the ball? The ball then went to the Hall of Fame when the movie was put in, and it was there with the ball and glove that I used in that game that night. And incredible, now I've got it and it's all wrapped up, but it's still look back at it. And I did it, and I'm like, did that really happen? I mean, it was fast, it was furious, and here you are, and there you are, and you're not in Big Lake, Texas anymore. Right, so that ball and glove, if I go to Cooperstown, it's sitting there, huh? Used to be. They used to be moved that display and they still got the jersey, but they sent my ball and glove back to me because they knew how much I wanted it. So you have it back now. I do have it back. Where it belongs. That's superb. Now, after that night, you only made about another what fifteen or so appearances in Major League Baseball before you retired. You'd lived a dream. I mean, even though it was short, you lived a dream that millions of kids never even get to blink and think about, you know. What are you feeling when your time in baseball comes to an end? First off, I thought if I would have got this dream when I was 19, it wouldn't have mattered to me. Getting a second chance and doing it at 35 for a group of kids who nobody believed in, that was, you have a dream when you're five and you want to be this major league baseball player and it doesn't happen for you. But then at 35, when when you know how the world works and you raise a family and you're coaching kids or you're doing whatever job you have and you get that second shot and you take it and you actually make it, it doesn't get any better than that. And I have those kids to think. Do you still keep in contact with them? I do. We've had a foundation. We've kind of been on hold because of COVID. Imagine that. <laughs> but we go into inner city schools and, and help rebuild their sports fields because I want kids in between the white lines, not outside the white lines. And so we did one school up in Fort Worth. Tremendous turnaround. The alumni got involved. They planted flowers and trees and the baseball field got redone, the weight room for all the sports. It was just incredible the way everything came together. So once COVID decides it's going to go home and take a siesta, we're going to get back out there and see what we can do. Well, I'm sure what you guys have done has been pretty impressive. I remember reading in the book about, you know, you guys doing a new floor for that weight room and putting new equipment in there and you know, that's a big deal when you're talking about young athletes making sure they've got safe equipment to train on so that they're not, you know, there's no reason to get injured lifting weights. It's just not necessary for young 17, 16 year old kids to do that. Well, also when you have a group of kids who get off a school bus 10 miles away from them to play another school and that school has an artificial turf field and they've got a top notch indoor facility and they've got eight sets of uniforms and 10 hats yeah, and your kids are struggling to get a set of uniforms that match. It it's tough place to be in, and who do you? What part of pro, program do you want to be in? You want to be in this one where you don't get anything, or you want to be in the one where you get everything? Sure. And and so when you start teaching these kids, we're entrusting you with this. This is the future for you guys. And actually, last year before COVID struck, they were ten and zero going into district and. They've totally turned around, so it's been a blessing. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Now, in the years since baseball ended, you've released two books. Your most recent book, I've got it here, is Dream Makers, Surround Yourself with the Best to Be Your Best. I just finished it. I literally binge-read it in like three days, and I'll have you know that before about Thanksgiving, I'd only read about three books in 10 years. I'm not a reader. My wife's the reader. And since Thanksgiving, now I've torn through years as the six books since Thanksgiving. I just decided I might as well start doing something new since I'm on quarantine fatigue at this point. 
but it's a fantastic book. Um, and in it, you write, quote, in the two decades since I retired from Major League Baseball, I had more than 40 surgeries. They were performed to relieve pain, to remedy digestive system issues, and to treat nerve and bone injuries, end quote. You would eventually be diagnosed with CTE-induced CTE Parkinsonism. Can you share with the listeners what CTE is and how it may have been related to the Parkinson's? Uh, CTE is chronic traumatic encephaly, and it's from getting too many concussions. A lot of guys in war get it, men and women, and then athletes get them. You, even in basketball, you get hit in the noggin with the basketball. Somebody else is passing, your head gets in the way, or you run into somebody, and those build up over time, and it takes neurons in our, our body to, it takes a lot of time for them to heal in ways that surgeries would be automatic. Nerves take a course of time. And so I had, by the time we got to this doctor in Houston, he goes, you've had over 30 concussions and there is scarring on your brain from the headaches you've been having. He goes, you're just going to get sicker. And he put me on Parkinson's medication and it worked. The one thing it did do, it, it made my stomach stop working. Mm. And so, you know, then all the gastric stuff. And so I had gastric bypass and people now they're like, you're 57. You look great. It's not the way you want to get there. Um, but the Parkinson's deal, we knew something was going on for 20 years and we never got an answer. And when we did, we just looked at each other, hugged each other and cried because I knew it was something. I couldn't button the buttons on my shirt. I couldn't travel alone anymore because I couldn't get dressed because I couldn't button my buttons. Hard to put shoes on in time, hard to keep my balance. If I leaned backwards in any too quickly, I would fall straight back. And if my dog got wrapped up in my legs, I couldn't get my way out. I would fall over. And so it got bad real quick and we didn't understand that. And the surgeries just kind of built up on us. So I had deep brain stimulator put in and that seemed to do the trick. For the first time in years, I could smell, I could taste. My, my off-balanceness got better, and but we had it turned up pretty high. I don't want to give everything away, but let's just say I had a deep brain stimulator taken out. There's one good thing that happened in 2020. I had that thing taken out of my brain. So if we ever do get to fly again, TSA will let me through without trying to see what the battery is. <laughs> Were you always getting pulled aside on TSA and getting sca a every, second scan or what? Every single time I had to rub my hands because I had a battery on my chest and then they would rub the cotton on them and put them in their machine. Right. Every time. Yeah. And, and now we can't travel and I don't have it, but we'll get back. <laughs> well, reading the book, it seems clear that became kind of the start, even though you had some small successes medically, but it seemed like it became the start of a really dark period in your life. What can you share about that? And this was at a time when all the opiates were really up on top of everybody's list. And the doctors are giving me these high prescription opiates because the headaches are blinding. And I would go to a speech and I would take painkillers and I would go to sleep. And then I would get up, do my speech, go back to my room, sleep till I go back to the plane, get on a plane, go home and sleep. That was basically my life, live from speech to speech. And I was making my wife miserable and probably my kids miserable but I was miserable. Everything hurt. I'd had so many surgeries. I didn't know what to do. The pills weren't working. And so I thought, well, since I'm a medical doctor, not I'll throw in my own little prescription and throw vodka on top of that and see if we can get some relief. 
Little and a little bit of vodka. There, huh? Yeah, a little bit turned into a lot of it. And we get to a point in 2016 where I don't remember the week of Christmas. I'd mix my anxiety medication into my painkillers at the same time. And when I was supposed to have one, I had like four. And so within 24 hours, I'd had eight and just I disappeared. And the next thing I know, I wake up in rehab. And I think for the first time in my life, I got to concentrate on me and the problems that had brought me to this point and never living up to what I was supposed to with my dad and blaming him for problems that I had had and my failures and of one unsuccessful marriage and kids in between households and just everything that builds up on you. And then you go and it's all about you and they take your phone away. And, you know, I call it the last resort for the last resort. Yeah. But it's also where I made the biggest strides in my life. Our counselor was a pastor and he, he worked at the center there with, with me. And he goes, I've been to every major league ballpark. I've got mementos, as you can see all over my office. He goes, I love the movie. I love your story. Why are you here? Mm. And I just looked at him and I go, I lost my way. I started believing that the doctors were right when they said, you're just going to get sicker. You're just going to get sicker. That's just how it is. Nobody ever gets better with this. And then you start to, when you buy that product, you're done because you give in. I wasn't trying to die, but I wasn't trying to live either. I isolated myself. I took my pills. I never overtook them, but I drank alcohol with them. And from the time I talked to that pastor, I made up my mind, this is not going to happen. At the same time, and I call on my girls. You know why. It's in the book. My girls are praying for me at church. And the girls are from 50 to 90. But they, they don't want to be called women. And they don't want to be called ma'am. They want to be called girls. So they're my girls. They've been praying for me the whole time. I go to rehab. I don't detox whatsoever. I've been on pain pills for 20 years. 68 surgeries. Add in all those pain pills on top of before, during, and after. And then the alcohol that went with that. I just never gave my body a break. Yeah. And so these girls prayed and while everybody else is getting sick, I'm fine. And I just motor through and I learn everything I can. I see the reasons that got me there. And it's been four years, you know, like last month and nothing to drink. I don't care. It was one of those things you turn on, you turn off. And I turned it off and God turned it off and those girls turned it off and God used a group of girls from my church to pray for me through a lot of stuff and my wife also. And they prayed for us through all the surgeries and everything else that went on, including not remembering Christmas of 2016. And I just want to say this, be, chronic illness doesn't care what color you are, or what language you speak. Addiction doesn't care what color you are, or what language you speak. I've seen people in my Parkinson's groups from all walks of life. I've seen people in the addiction center from all walks of life. It can come get you. Rich people, poor people in between. Yep. Yep. As someone who lives with psoriatic arthritis, I get it on the chronic illness and the, you know, living through pain and not to the extent you did, but it, it doesn't matter. You're absolutely right. It doesn't matter. Black, white, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. Chronic yeah. illness will, will come and get you. And if you let it, it will take you to a very dark place. And I know a lot yeah. of friends who have suffered through chronic pain and 
and and it definitely can do a number on you if you let it. Going through those challenges, what did you learn about yourself? I learned that I can't be anybody but me. And I need to be the best me I can be. And I didn't let myself believe that for a long time. I wasn't good enough. And I always needed fixing by somebody. My first marriage was like that. I went in thinking, I'm going to fix her and she'll be what I want. And she thought, I'll fix him and he'll be what I want. And we have great kids out of it, but we're not married. (laughs) (laughs) And my second wife, we carried all our baggage into this marriage. And that started off rocky too. I've gotten to find out who Jim Morris is. It's not the rookie and it's, it's, it's not the teacher anymore. And it's, my wife's husband and my kid's father. That's what's important. Absolutely. Those other things are moments in your life, but you know, your wife and your kids, that's your legacy. And yeah. that's what really matters. You know, this last year has been so difficult for all of us across the fair industry and, and really, you know, nationwide, it doesn't matter. I'm sure you've had numerous speaking engagements canceled and you know just like we've had our fairs and our our entertainment canceled i was scheduled to debut with my show down in australia in april and that went away so you know super difficult time for all of us jobs and livelihoods lost depression can kick in and become a deep spiral for our friends what do you think we can all do to best support our friends and family during an incredibly stressful pandemic be kind have a smile, man. I go to the grocery store or we go anywhere, even though people have masks on, you can tell they're not smiling and people are hurting and people are mad and people are angry. And it's not because you're black, white, yellow, purple. It doesn't matter. Everybody is going through this. And when will it get better? Is it as bad as they say? Is it way worse than they're saying? Does it even exist? We don't know. And there's so many different avenues that the news is going down. You're like, nobody knows the truth. And so nobody's happy. Nobody's spreading any joy, just kindness and joy. If you can't be with the people you love, tell them you love them. To me, it's pretty simple. We need to unify and not be divisive. Yeah. Yeah. I like that to be kind and, and smile and, you know, connect with people at the beginning of the season on episode one, we had coffee Anderson on who's a country music singer and he's got a show on Netflix right now called country ever after uh, you and John would probably really enjoy it. But I asked him, I said, you know, what are you feeling through all this? And he said, you know, I go every place and people just seem down. And yet I'm walking in there and I'm going, hey, how are you? Good to see you. Hey, how are you doing today? And he said, I can literally watch people's moods change just walking through and smiling at them and saying hi because they don't feel like they're muscled. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful thing, Jim. Now, I'm not sure if you remember, um, but you and I met in person several years ago. You were the keynote speaker for the Texas Association of Fairs. Um, I think it was 2000, I think initially I was thinking 17, but it was 16 because I remember, um, one of those Facebook memories popped up from when you'd signed that baseball for me. That's actually sitting over my shoulder right now. And it was 2016. And that day you signed that baseball for me and on it, you wrote, follow your dreams and added Hebrews 11, one, the same verse was written in your signed copy of the book when I purchased it. And it's a Bible verse that reads, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Why that verse? I think it speaks to everybody and everybody wants to see this and everybody wants to see that. 
what do you believe in that you can't see? What is there to strive for? Because if you believe in everything, then why are you sitting here talking to me or working in a grocery store or whatever it is you're doing? Why don't you go chase that dream? It's, mm. We get lost in a moment and I think we forget to dream. But that dream also needs to be put into action. And you, gotta, you can't sit still. And going back to the last question previous to this one, and quit sitting still. When we sit still, we think too much. And when we think too much, the liar starts getting on top of our shoulder going, you can't do this. You're not going to make it. What are you going to do besides this? Just get busy. Be physical. Get in shape. Use this to be a better parent, a better wife, a better husband. Be whatever it is, but be a better version of it. Yeah, I All think starting smile, starting to get moving, and and you were right about inaction um, is can be deadly um, for dreams. I, a friend of mine once, I can't. He was quoting somebody that said um, it might have been Kennedy that said it. I can't remember, but it was um, you know something terrible happens when you don't take action. Nothing, and I don't want to live a life that's full of nothing. I want you know. Yeah. I started out in this industry doing fairs as a magician and then was talking to some other entertainers at, at the agency I was with at the time. This was back in 2011. So, you know, I, there's so many magic shows in the fair industry. I, wanted, I want a different way to present magic. And somebody says, you know, that Zoltar machine in the movie Big and Tom Hanks film? I said, yeah, he goes, you should build one and you should get in. You beat Zoltar. You be that guy. You, you know, I'm like, so you want me to get in a box? I'm on stage. I got like 100 people, 200 people in my audience. Now you want me to stand in a box? Yep, you should absolutely do that. And uh, I had my agent and the guy who suggested it combined had you know, 45, 50 years combined experience in the industry. And they were like, if you don't do we're going to give you six months. And if you don't do it, we're going to do it. Okay, I'm going to take a big risk right here and I'm going to take some action. And I built it. And I didn't know what the hell it was going to be. I didn't know how to perform it. I didn't know what it was. Was it just doing magic tricks? I had no idea. But as it grew and changed over the years, um, it became this fun little attraction in the fair industry that was going to get me this year, but for COVID would have taken me to Australia. And it's because I took that action. So to anybody listening with what Jim's saying, don't sit, sit there and feel sorry for yourself. Every, all of us get knocked on our butts at, at varying degrees. Get up and, and try something else. It's you know, you ended up, you know, ultimately, not only did you get that dream again, you got to live that major league dream. And then afterwards, you managed to find yourself a keynote speaker, which in the book, you are pretty clear that that was never part of your goal. And yet, there you were speaking to people all over the world and sharing your story. How many keynotes do you typically do in a year? We got to a point where we're doing 40 or 60 a year. And when you add in a day or two of travel here and a day or two of travel home, you're on the road a lot. Um, COVID, and I'm going to get blamed by everybody and go ahead and blame me. I'm easy. You're My cool. wife and I have been talking for two years, right? We're like, hey, we need to look into virtual talks so we don't have to go to the airport anymore. And then 2020 hits and it's like, oh, it's we fault. have to do virtual talks. We can't <laughs> go to the airport anymore. Oh, yeah. Yep. I've got some friends who do virtual work and uh, – seeing them all of a sudden setting up green screens at their home and home and whatnot doing lighting and what, cause like we got to have something and man, they're finding a way they're probably still, you know, they're losing a lot, still losing a lot of work, but they're finding a way to make it through, which I admire the hustle. Like 
these are those are the people that when we're down, you've got to look at to get a little bit of inspiration because all of us got knocked on our butts. I know entertainers that were like, well, my my show's in my garage or it's in storage ready to go. But for now, I'm going to go work at Home Depot or I'm going to go work at Costco, but I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep the hustle going, keep the revenue flowing so they can pay bills and all that. So the adjustments are, it's just what I think people who take action, it's what what we do. So you have been That's able to- Surrounding yourself with the best. Yeah. You know, I, I guess- I hear, and I don't know how true it is. I think there's probably some real truth to it. You know, you're a product of the five people that you spend the most time with. Um, and I think if you're surrounding yourself by those kind of people, you know, you're going to succeed. Um, maybe it was Elon Musk said it. If you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room and you need yeah. to change rooms. I and, love that. Uh, it's, it really is. It's telling when you're the, you know, at some point, if you're the, if you're the top dog in that room, you're not growing anymore. And, uh, you know, that's why I think we need to keep, um, you know, keep moving. I, that's what this podcast was for me. Quite frankly, I got to the point where last October I was kind of feeling, I wasn't in a dark place, but I was starting to feel the depression coming in. And plus you get towards winter where it gets dark so early. And for me, that just messes with my head. And all of a sudden I was like, you know what? I bet there's a lot of people in our fair industry that have, that are feeling this way. And so we just started talking to people and yeah. we're starting to, you know, I joke that I've got nine listeners on the show, but I love all nine of them <laughs> and it's a start, you know? Um, so listen, I know we're getting towards being, uh, we, we've got just about 15 minutes here, but I'd like to switch up here and talk a little baseball with you for a few minutes. Um, that baseball, by the way, is a subject that I can talk about all day long. There's, I really think as much as I love my wife, that baseball was my first love in life. And I played little league and got to high school ball. And then I got cut from the freshman team. And I got that reality check that even though I was good, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And it, you know, it is what it is to some, some extent I realized all the kids that made the team had been doing the high school summer baseball camp, you know, all through middle school where yeah. we traveled we went on vacation so i never showed up at any of those so i learned a little bit about the politics of high school sports back then but baseball has been my love since i was a kid i i tell you what i got choked up watching the rookie yesterday when when your coach tells you they're on the road in texas it's like he's gonna get to make his debut for his family oh my god and <laughs> You know, I don't think it's possible to not have a dry eye when James Earl Jones walks out on that field in Dyersville, Iowa, and, and gives his speech in Field of Dreams. And so baseball is a love for mine, but I'm curious because we've got some, some stuff going on in baseball. I, I'm interested in your opinion. So what do you think about some of the rule changes that they're experimenting with, like starting a runner on second base in extra innings? I think some of that is okay. I know they're trying to speed the game up and everything. Right. What I think of was in my 11 year hiatus from baseball, professional baseball, I played softball and that's what we did in softball. <laughs> and I thought, really? You know, slow pitch softball. And that, you know, I'm, on one side, I see the arms you've got to save because you need somebody the next day and you don't right. want to be just shuffling people up and down that aren't ready. But come on, man, this is a game that has seen us through a lot of what we've stood for in this country. Yep. Let's play the game. If they want a ball inside, give them chin music. If, if you just play. Yeah. I don't think anybody, everybody goes, what game did you see? Oh, it was one or nothing. And you're like, oh, cool. 
it was a 17 inning game. Then you're like, that was a great game to me. That would be awesome. Yeah. And because you're seeing people just step up and do what they can and my best against your best. And here we go. I want to see them cut loose. I'm tired of rules. Well, and I get tired of, I, I understand what replay was put in place for. Like when, um, Baltimore got robbed that year, the Jeffrey Mayer home run against the Yankees in the, I think it was in the playoffs where he reaches into the field and takes, pulls the home. Like I'm, I'm all down with replay for that, but I am tired of seeing a, a bang, bang play at first base on the second batter of the game. And we're going to replay like out safe. Keep playing the game. That to me is ridiculous. Keep, keep playing. We've become so particular about the way things are done. We want to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And human error is part of what makes the game fun. Right. And who, who you have to yell at if you don't make a mistake here and there. Right. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, for all the flack that umpires get, and I understand there's a couple umpires out there that are definitely not fan favorites. Uh, but when you look at a guy like Jim Joyce, who blew the Galarraga perfect game call, and I don't, honestly, looking at the replay, nobody understands. Even he doesn't understand how he missed that. Um, but the fact that he owned up to it, like he could have disappeared and been like, said nothing, but he went out to a press conference and he owned it and he, you know, um, took responsibility for screwing that up. That to me, that's a good guy right there. That's the guy you want to be umpiring for your game. If I'm in a, if I'm in game seven of the world series, I want Jim Joyce behind the plate. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the bad guys, it's just like every business on the planet. You're going to have one or two that just want to see everybody else fall. And they don't care who they make look bad doing it. Yep. You know, umpires aren't any different than guys on teams. And the guys on teams aren't any different than the police station and every organization on this planet. There are good people and bad people involved. Yep. And you just got to learn to play around it. You know, sometimes you're going to win the day and sometimes that ump's going to take you down. And next, you yeah. got to go play that, you know, be happy that you get to play the next game. You know, maybe that's what we got to do is change that, change our perspective on it. We could be like, you know, oh man, that um, you know, he's he's calling too wide a zone, or he's not consistent, or this and that. Yeah, but at the end of the day, are you still twenty five and healthy, and you get to play again tomorrow? You get a shot at next season. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. How much? How much meal money you make a day? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking <laughs> of meal money, are you keeping up with free agency this off season? You seen what's going on? Uh, a little bit. A lot of it has. I think I'm where other people kind of sit. The guys who have played the game, it's. It's a different game. And I understand that every two or three decades it changes, but this one is 2000s has seemed to be really drastic. Yes. But that's probably what my grandparents thought when they were looking at the people in front of them. And so maybe it's just my age and, and that's just the way things are going to transpire and it needs to become more elegant and, and nicer. And we're not going to be mean to each other and yep. we're not going to throw inside. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it was a different game went back in even when I was growing up in the in the mid '80s. Um, you know, one of my favorite players early on in my life was Greg Jeffries, and it was Gary Carter and Greg Jeffries. I loved watching those guys play, but I never realized until I was an adult what some of those old school players did to him um, and how they treated him. It was just a different kind of game. Now you've got you know young hot shots like um, you know Trevor Bauer or. Uh, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, and like that's the that's the standard. You have that one super mega star player, and um, everybody kind of falls into play behind them. 
Any um, speaking of yeah. any predictions on where you think Trevor Bauer ends up? Some place where the GM is going to let him talk. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I like um, I like how to an extent what he and his agent Rachel Luber are doing um, the way they're they're building his brand. I think Major League Baseball needs more brand building for some players. Um, but boy, you can't please everyone all the time. And when you've got, especially a young agent who's an attractive young female, there's certainly the, you know, the old school guard that are going to try to have an opinion about that. And, you know, I don't know. I think she's doing a great job for her client though. I think unless we're perfect, we don't need to judge anybody. I agree. I agree. She's I look doing back that. at this week. I look back this week and go, and I'm bringing this up because it's a good story. At 10 years of age, I'm at Fenway Park, my all-star team. My dad's in the military in Connecticut. Our team goes up there. We get to watch Hank Aaron play for the Milwaukee Braves, get a ball signed by Hank Aaron. We live in Connecticut. It's winter, snows. I sandlotted Hank Aaron's baseball. And wow. 30 years later, I'm at the stock exchange with Hank Aaron, and we're ringing the closing bell together, and I'm telling him this story. And he, he just starts giggling. And I thought, if there's one person that you, that went through a baseball career and at the times that he went through and did it right and stood above the fray and always built people up and didn't tear people down, that's what a hero is about. And Hank oh, yeah. Aaron was mine. And just getting to sit there and talk to the man in 2002 at the stock exchange, he and I, it was just a blast because you're just two baseball guys, but he did something that was so extraordinary that a lot of guys today, I don't know that they appreciate that and it needs to be appreciated. Yeah. He's got a, especially when you look at some of those historically, those black players that were early on, you know, the Jackies and Roberto Clemente's and Hank Aaron's, it wasn't just a, a game for them. It was, um, it was changing the way the world works. It was changing the way yeah. the world looks at them and accepts them. Um, you know, I can't even watch that movie 42 about Jackie Robinson without choking up. Like it just, the stuff that those players went through, um, not only for you and I could never imagine. Ugh, I, I, yeah. I mean, I've, I've never been, I've been, I've been treated rudely in my life. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. No. Those guys changed. They not only changed history, they changed the game and they did it for themselves yeah. and, and, you know, the, their fellow, uh, fellow Americans and that look like they do. And they were, and it made, right. it made they the game heroes. better. They made the game better. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and God bless, you know, Hank Aaron, who just passed uh, in this last week. Um, Absolutely. Just a legendary player. Um, so looking back, at your time in Major League Baseball, you know, you strike out Royce Clayton in that first appearance, which is no easy task because he was a baller. He could put the ball in play with the best of them. Is there a player at the time that you wished you could have faced, but you never got the chance to? Uh, I'm going to sound crazy for saying this, but I would have loved to have pitched to Barry Bonds. Just because his best is hitting the fastball, my best is throwing a fastball, and let's just line it up and see where it goes, man. That would have been cool. I think, 
I think that would have been fun. He's lefty. I'm lefty. Let's go. See what happens, right? May the best man win. Yeah. yeah. And since he hit like a million home runs, he, he probably would have won. But you know what? I would have got <laughs> yeah, to do it. Yeah, but you would have been able to say, I pitched to Barry Bonds. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't even remember who it was that gave up the record setting. And he obviously set multiple records with home runs, but I forget um, for the all-time record who was pitching. But can you imagine that's that you're that guy? That's your story? Oh, you know, hey, Grandpa, you pitched in the major leagues. Yep. And I gave up Barry Bonds' all-time home run. I don't know. I mean, only one guy well, gets to say that. You know, I know, right? <laughs> oh, I remember we used to we used to go in minor league games, and all the guys who weren't pitching that day would shag balls. And I can remember Paul Molitor coming down to minor league camp with the Brewers and just watching he and Robin Young just how smooth they were with the bat and how good they were and could put the ball where they wanted to, and it's just a different level those guys live at. Yeah, and incredible talent. Yep. I, I remember when uh, Curtis Granderson got picked up by the Mets, um, hated him when he played for the Yankees, of course, being a Mets fan, I'm like, Oh, you paid for the Yankees. Forget you. But I got to tell you what, you want to talk about black players that made a difference for the game. That guy was more than a baseball player. He was an ambassador for the sport. He's really one of the finest players that um, I think I ever, I ever saw play. Just you know how to tell guy. somebody he's a good, a good role model. You don't read about them because we're not going to write about people who do it right. Oh, we want the controversial story. Yep. We want the controversial stories. And of all the things and pictures that were painted, I still get along with Jose Canseco. I think he's cool. He just grew up on a different planet than I did because he was treated way different than me. By the time I came up, I should be getting out of baseball. He did that his whole youth and through adulthood. Yeah. And so just a different world. And but nice as he could be to me. And we did a card show about five or six months ago and he came up, he hugged me, he goes, you remember me? And how could I not remember you, man? Look at your shoulders. <laughs> you know, can take a dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your your arm is as big as my leg. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he was he was uh, he was an interesting guy, um, I think. He just grew up in a, a different time within the game and and the media. They had their way with him, just like they do so many. We love that in, in the United States, don't we? We love to build somebody up, put them on top of that pedestal, and then we like to kick it out from under them. Oh, absolutely, man. It's, it's almost we like feed the, on negative. There's a lot of poison. There's a lot of poison out there, and you got to just, you know, I find anymore at, at I wish I knew it at 40 or at 20, what I know now at 41. Um, you know, now I get things that I get poison thrown at me, and I'm just like, you know, if I have a bad day, I spit it out and I'm like, all right, it's done. Next morning I wake up and I'm good to go. Um, I try yeah. not to harbor resentment. Um, just try to take a deep breath. You know, um, Dan Crenshaw, who's uh, the congressman, one of your congressmen down there in Texas from Houston, I just read his book. And, you know, he's got a good line in his book. It's one of the things they train as Navy SEALs um, to be still and look, listen, and question. And that's what I try instead of being reactive to things. Now I try to be more responsive to things. So I try to think what's yeah. just, I stop myself from speaking, you know, what just happened? What did that guy just say? What did that email just say? Do I need to respond to that? You know, and, and they train Navy SEALs that because when they drop them in a hot zone, 
you never know you're you know you stop and you get still and you may smell something and be like somebody's smoking a cigarette and it's not one of us you know you that <laughs> scent might give away where an yeah. enemy is that you need to take cover from so i think being still and listening and and being responsive instead of reactive is something all of us could start doing a lot more of absolutely man and good for you for reading <laughs> like I said, I finally I finally got into it and I've got I got this whole shelf of books back here that I'm just going, going, going as much as I can, you know, a bunch of Gary Vaynerchuk, some Mark Manson, Jocko Willink. I'm just like, read everything. Read. Listen, Jim, you, man. it's been uh, it's been a real honor to have you on the show. We're just about out of time. Before we go, everyone who comes on the show goes through a little series of six speed round questions. I'm going to ask you these six questions and you give me your best answers for each. You ready? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Go ahead. <laughs> Favorite food to eat at a baseball game? Hot dog. Which player most inspired you when you were a kid? Hank Aaron. What about currently? And Fred Lynn. Fred Lynn. What about currently? Oh, currently? Uh, we bring Nolan Ryan up, and then right now I love Garrett Cole. And the command he has, but he's also being talked about in another way, and I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. I hear you on that. So now, I, let's go to with Trevor Bauer because he calls everybody out and he still goes out and lights it up. Yes, he does. For the National League, DH or no DH? Why are we going to change something that puts just one thing one way or the other, one degree one way or the other, when the American League and the National League play? Let them do this. Let them do that. And when they're at each other's place, they do whatever the rules are. And let's not change everything. So you think just keep it no DH, keep it as it's always been. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you there. When you travel, which you do a lot pre-COVID, what's one item you must have with you? My deodorant. <laughs> Fair enough. First celebrity crush? Oh, first celebrity crush. Stevie Nicks. There you go. And besides your movie, what's your favorite baseball movie moment? Tom Hanks. There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> League of Their Own. Yes, that's my wife's yeah. favorite baseball movie. But there is crying in baseball. I mean, how can you not be get emotional and get passionate about baseball? Absolutely, man. When a guy's wanted to be there his whole life and he gets that shot, there is nothing like the first time you run out there, man. Nothing. And I was scared out of my mind. And just imagine those kids today, 19, 20, 21 years old, getting to go out there and do that and lighten it up like they do. Yeah. God bless and, them, man. And getting go the paycheck get they get paid for it. Like, that's yeah, not too bad. Don't be afraid to share, man. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> His new book is called Dream Makers Surround Yourself with the Best to Be Your Best. And it's out now. Jim, if folks want to contact you or pick up a copy of the book, where can they do that? They can get the book from Amazon and jimtherookiemorris.com is how you get a hold of us. Jim Dreammakers. Dreammakers. Dreammakersbook.com. I'm getting words in from my wife because yes, I hear him back and going, don't forget Dreammakers. Yeah. Book. I forget to say things. I'm like, I wrote it. I know what it says, but the people who are listening don't know that. And, and as I understand it, because this is what I did, if you go to dreammakersbook.com, you can pick up a personalized copy, a signed copy. Is that correct? Yes, sir. 
Awesome. Jim Morris, former Major League Baseball player whose story was adapted to the big screen in Disney's The Rookie. My friend, you are an inspiration to a lot of people. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it. You have a great day. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.